It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and it is a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Jason Oliver Evans. I'm having Jason on the show today because he authored an article in The Conversation. It is entitled, How the Ebenezer Baptist Church Has Been a Seat of Black Power for Generations in Atlanta. And quite timely in many ways, but I want to tell you a little bit about Jason to begin with. He is a PhD student in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. He's a scholar of Christian thought and primarily is studies of Christology, soteriology, creation, and theology. Oh my goodness, theo- theological anthropology. <laughs> and you know, it's some of those big words that attracted me to Jason as well because I have to tell you that in reading about his his education I came across some words I usually I'm used to coming across big words in science and those kind of things but he came it threw a couple of curves at me so he he considers how identity race sexuality and gender are more broadly factored into the study of Christian faith and practice and his other work research interests include African American theology and religion Uh, liberation theologies, Africana studies, gender and sexuality studies. Okay. Trinitarian theology. As I told you, there's a big one there. That threw me. Uh, Theological and social ethics. I'm not used to saying these words, Jason. You can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Scripture and theological. Oh, my goodness. Here's another one. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Thank you. And the thought of 20th century reformed theologian Karl Barth. And he's also a podcaster and contributor to the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. So it's a pleasure to welcome Jason to the show now that I've been able to find my way through that. (laughs) Do we have any time left? I don't know. (laughs) Jason, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, David. Much appreciated. Yeah, there's some some really interesting things there in your study. Can you explain some of those interests and some of those things that you, in your life experience, to include? Yeah. Um, so I have had a longstanding interest in uh, Christian theology. Mm. Um, I grew up in a family of Baptists in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, I'm a fourth generation Baptist minister. But as a kid, I had all of these questions about God and about reality and about death. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get answers to um satisfy my interest. And as I grew older as a teenager, I struggled with my own personal identity, um, both as a a black um, person living, you know, what does it mean to be black and Christian, but also Mm. what does it mean to be, um, as I was, you know, since my own sense of uh, sexuality mm. as a uh, as a queer identity is emerging, even though I, I hid it mm. throughout my teenage years, mm. I struggled intellectually to make sense of what does it mean to be black, gay and Christian. Mm. And so um, the study of Christian theology did not take any kind of formal interest until I uh, graduated from college. But I always studied Christian theology since I was a teenager. So mm. I would just pick up articles, I would pick up books, trying to make sense of what, like, what does it mean to be Christian? Because mm. I thought I knew what it meant to be Christian. Um, but when all of the social uh, 
background coming, you know, emerging mm. with the race. And, mm. I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. an older millennial, so there was the Amadou Diallo case that was in, 1990, mm. in the late 1990s and um, just the what does it mean to be black and why is my Christianity different than white Christians? Mm -hmm. You know, I I grew up predominantly in a black church. So Mm -hmm. as I got to college, I was exposed to white evangelicals. And so I'm like, what's, what's the difference between the Christianity that I practiced and white evangelicals? Mm -hmm. All of those questions just came to the forefront and still, of course, my sexuality when I got to college. And so I'm just pulling any kind of Christian theological book that I could find. And I would say, even though I struggled with my sexuality, I was still still on the pretty conservative side mm-hmm. of my theology. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of similarities that I shared with white evangelicals, with the exception of my race and sexuality, right. of course. Yeah. Um, um, and so I, it, the study of theology was purely, for me, existential. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated from college, well, during my college years, I um, accepted a call to ministry, and that was also another existential crisis, because I'm like, okay, could God ever call a black gay man to preach? (laughs) I don't know. Um, So I did that, and when I graduated from college, I I took a year off, and then I applied to seminaries, three seminaries, um, and then I got accepted to all three, and I chose Duke Divinity School, went there, earned an MDiv or a Master of Divinity, and the formal study of theology began. And I was like, oh, I really, I really am like really stoked about this. Cool. And so while I had other career interests in mind, this bug really bit. Mm. And so I applied for another master's and got accepted to Emory University and did another master's there. And I'm like, you know what? I really want to pursue my questions about blackness and queerness and Christian faith more deeply. And I want to, you know, turn this into a career. So I um, took five years break and then I applied in um, 2017 to PhD programs and I was accepted to UVA. And so UVA has um, UVA among public research institutions is an anomaly because in their religious studies departments, they have a strong um, track within Christian thought. And so that's not normal for a religious studies program mm. <laughs> in a public institution. Mm. Um, and so, but I was interested in what they could offer. And so I chose uh, UVA as my um, PhD program. And I've been here for three years ever since. And um, my current interests. You know, it seems on paper, it's like, oh, this is a lot, Jason. But right now, my sole interest is what does it mean to do theology or to practice theology? And what what difference does theology make in the lives of black LGBTQ people? Mm. Like more more specifically, who is Jesus and what difference does he make Mm. in the lives of black LGBTQ people? Mm. And what does that look like? when one pursues that question intellectually. And so that's, so as you can see throughout my CV, all of those kinds of disparate (laughs) subjects Mm. converge in that one central question, because you can't really talk about, at least this is my argument, you can't really talk about Christian theology if it doesn't matter materially to the lives of those who profess any faith um, or who seek to profess a faith, but will seek to understand. Um, and you have to talk about those dimensions, right. about gender, sure. about sexuality, about yep. race, because that 
is you're dealing with the intersections of people's lived experiences mm. in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't, it's, I believe that Christian faith is prime is fundamentally affirming of material reality. And so a Christian theology that doesn't attend to those matters is simply ineffectual and not, you, you know, it's just void of any value. Mm. Fascinating stuff, Jason. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. It, it really fills out the picture here. And also, uh, give, you, you are on such a fascinating journey. Congratulations to you on this, uh, you know, and all the best of, in, in everything that you're pursuing here. Uh, I have to ask you, though, you know, you said you started to look at the differences in Christianity and, and, and the difference between black and white. Did you find anything? Did you come to any conclusions? Well, yeah. Well, specifically uh, within the North in the American context, mm. I found throughout my journey that white evangelical Christianity and African American Christianity primarily are different when it comes to the historical reckoning of race and mm. white supremacy in mm. the United States. Mm. Um. On paper, if you were to look at the doctrinal statements of, let's say, my home denomination of, um, well, the National Baptist Convention or the Progressive National Baptist Convention in the United mm. States, if you looked at our articles of faith, it is no different than, um, let's say, the American Baptist churches, which is predominantly white. They're not particularly evangelical. But if you were to look at like other doctrinal statements that are produced by evangelicals, um, they're not entirely different. There are a couple of exceptions because in white evangelicalism since the 1970s, they have made um, marriage a doctrinal matter, a fundamental doctrinal matter, which is crazy. But nevertheless, the, the, but the main difference is the racial imagination that shapes both white evangelicalism and African-American Christianity to the point that you can see why African-American Christians in the United States generally vote Democratic Mm. as opposed to Republican. Mm. Okay. That kind of of leads into our article a little bit that you wrote to some degree because you start the article in that way. But before we get there, um, I I want to just say that it sounds like the journey you are on and your your history, your specific history of, I think you said, third generation uh, of, of being ordained. I'm a fourth generation Baptist minister. So my great grandfather, my grandfather, my uncle and I are all Baptist ministers. Well, that sounds also very much like the uh, the Kings, um, you know, junior, senior and, and their predecessor Williams that you talk about in this article. Yeah. Um, in the autobiography of MLK Jr., he talks about growing up in this background he's like he says like my great-grandfather was a pastor my grandfather my maternal grandfather was a pastor my father was a pastor you know he couldn't it like being being a a pastor to paraphrase he didn't really have much of a choice Mm. (laughs) he just grew up in this ether of um baptist life uh, baptist church life and so um he is you know a fourth generation baptist minister Right. Now, before we get on to the article, there's one other thing I have to ask you about, because it's in your CV as well. 
And we're talking so much about about uh, Christianity and and religion here. Uh, the other thing it says you really enjoy are cooking, is cooking, baking, reading cookbooks, uh, food magazines, and watching cooking shows. You binge watch cooking cooking shows. Is, do you find a relationship there between uh, uh, not trying to be light but somewhat light a relationship between e- cooking, eating, and religion? Oh, I do. I believe that food as a um, materially in the literal sense Mm. is totally integrated in Mm. religion more broadly, Mm. as well as specifically within the Christian tradition. Mm. Food is food. I mean, we think about the Eucharist or the Holy Communion, which Mm. is the Mm -hmm. uh, central ritual that all three strains of Christianity, Mm. whether the Orthodox or the Catholic or the Protestant traditions share, Mm. is that it is a ritual that is that is symbolized um, or you what we use food, um, bread and wine. And these two represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so food uh, coming together around a table uh, is a sign of which it points to in the book of Revelation about, you know, the marriage supper of the lamb, Mm. where all of creation gather around a table to enjoy a big festal party with the the God, their creator. So food centrally is placed throughout, excuse me, um, the biblical traditions, as well as the subsequent uh, religious traditions that form out of these texts, both Judaism and Christianity. Food plays a vital role within our understanding of uh, God and creation. Like to be, to eat is fundamentally um, a creaturely thing because as human beings, we depend on other aspects of the creation for our substance for mm. our sustenance, mm. right? And that materially is used um, and, um, on a metaphorical level, mm. where you, um, I believe, one of the psalms says, "Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good." Right. So, mm. food is symbolic of the the source of life. God feeding us um, with, you know. things that are not just material but also spiritual so food plays a huge role not just in the abrahamic faiths but all religious traditions right and i guess if you go right back uh you think about it uh the the eating of the forbidden fruit i guess right there is uh oh absolutely uh, yeah. yeah You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. Listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also listen on your favorite uh, podcasting platform. And you can also listen on the Element FM SoundCloud as well for some of our previously recorded conversations that we have had here on Moment of Truth. It's a pleasure to have on the show Jason Oliver Evans. He's a PhD student in religious studies at the University of Virginia. We're supposed to be talking to him about an article he wrote (laughs) in the conversation that he authored called How the Ebenezer Baptist Church Has Been a Seat of Black Power for Generations in Atlanta. And we're going to start talking to him about that right now. But we've had a fascinating conversation with Jason about his own personal journey and uh, some of the things that he has done and the the education that he has pursued. So we want to thank Jason for being on the show today. So Jason, I want to start with the, the title um, and, and the Ebenezer, the name, the Ebenezer Baptist Church, because that plays into uh, a very important role of, of the church itself, the name Ebenezer. 
Yes. Um, so Ebenezer is a name that derives from the Hebrew Bible. Um, Christians traditionally refer to it as the Old Testament, um, where from the first book of Samuel, it means stone of help. And it, as recorded, it is said that the Israelites were in a city called Mizpah. And at the time, um, with their enemies, uh, the Philistines, when they heard that they were there, the Philistine, the Philistine army planned to attack them. Um, when the uh, prophet Samuel uh, heard of this, um, he um, it said that he gathered the people to pray to the Lord to intervene on their behalf. And so um, when the Philistine army sought to encroach upon them, uh, God intervened in a miraculous way. And the eventually uh, the Philistine army was um, the, their attack was subverted and mm. eventually they were defeated. And mm-hmm. so the prophet Samuel um, took a stone, a large stone, and he erected as a monument to this decisive intervention from the God of Israel. And he named it Ebenezer. Um, the Hebrew words, I believe, is Eben, which means stone, and Ezer, which means help. So mm. stone of help. Mm. So it commemorates uh, God's intervention. And so it is Ebenezer Baptist Church um, was founded um, by appropriating or using this name. Um, And the argument that um, a couple of historians raise is that it was fitting that this particular congregation, which was founded in 1886, would be called Stone of Help um, because subsequently, Perhaps the founders did not, of the of the church did not see it, but perhaps they did. But subsequently in history, Ebenezer played a vital role in um, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Of course, giving birth to their most uh, famous son of that tradition, which is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. But it is a fascinating history, and you know that the growth of that church and that uh, lineage and how we see that uh, uh, through time is is what I also thought was really interesting because it helps to fill in the backstory a little bit. Yeah, because Martin Luther King, he did not arise his 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 witness or his ministry is not a fluke. Mm. He comes from a tradition, and so Ebenezer is a tradition. So, mm. um, as the article indicates, his maternal grandfather, the uh, the late um, Reverend Adam Daniel Williams, uh, was the second pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and it, during his tenure, he was quite active in um, the Atlanta um, area. Um, he was the co-founder of the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP. He was very active. And so he was able to not only pastor the church, but he carried a vision of what it means to be church. Um, Probably one of the very few African-Americans at that time to carry um, a vision of the church as both spiritual as well as um, uh, social Mm -hmm. in the sense that he was able to merge um, his own sense of the social gospel, which um, whenever people refer to the social gospel, it is a 19th century movement or late 19th century movement, which was kicked off by um, by um, a German American Baptist pastor by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch. And he's famous uh, for his ministry in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Mm. Um, 
where he wrote several books, including his famous A Theology of the Social Gospel, where he says that the it is the Christian duty or Christian understanding that um, Christians are to actively engage in the social transformation of the society. It's not merely to await for um, the new world or the, mm. or the kingdom to come. It mm. is simply to bring the kingdom of um, God on earth mm. through social involvement. And, but he had his own, um, Williams had his own sense of social gospel where he emphasized um, African-American entrepreneurship within that community, but also resisting um, segregation. Cause we know we, I mean um, in his tenure, he took on the um, church when you at the, just within a generation of Jim Crow mm-hmm. <laughs> beginning. And so he led the church in, and as well as the community in active resistance against um, Jim Crow policies within the city of Atlanta. Right. And when he is, his tenure ended with, um, with this death in 1931, his um, assistant pastor, who was also his son-in-law, which is um, the Reverend Martin Luther King senior, yep. He took on the mantle of the Ebenezer tradition um, by leading the church, and he was also himself a active uh, leader within the NAACP. And he he merged social gospel with his own fundamentalist um, understanding, and which what I find fascinating because there's this kind of um, this this kind of uh, stereotype that says if you're a fundamentalist in your theology then that means you are removed from the world. Now, that may, in the United States context, that's generally the case with the larger technical fundamentalist movement, which among white um, neo-evangelicals predecessors in the early 1920s, where they just removed themselves from all um, social engagement. However, uh, what MLK Sr. Uh, exemplifies is uh, an exception to that notion um, Perhaps because being an African-American, we are not afforded the luxury to remove ourselves from the world, given that the world around us Mm. is encroaching on us Mm. through, you know, segregation, through Mm. racial violence and et cetera. Mm. And so he was able um, to find warrant within the scriptures, not only to talk about soul salvation, but also to fight against the... um, the evils of the day. So he drew from the prophets um, to speak truth to power and mm. to fight um, on behalf of uh, his constituents and his parishioners, I'm sorry, congregants in um, the Atlanta. Um, and so Martin Luther King grew up, not just with the example of his, of the men in his life, but also the women in his life. Mm. So we think about his mother, Alberta uh, Williams King, she gave him a strong moral uh, foundation uh, where where many people don't know is that the idea of somebodyness, MLK Jr. got it from his mother. Mm. <laughs> his mother taught him at an early age that mm. he is somebody mm. and that both his mother and his father um, taught he, his brother, and his sister um, that they are of value, they are of worth, and they wanted them to understand that regardless of what, you know, white people in that time were, you know, saying about them, that is not, they, that will not shape their identity. They Mm. shaped their identity by affirming their life and their worth. Um, And so not only his mother, but also his 
maternal grandmother, uh, Jenny Parks Williams, was foundational for MLK's um, own spiritual foundation, but also his social witness because she herself was active alongside her husband, A.D. Williams, in um, the struggle for um, equality. And she was also a known speaker. Um, I conjecture, um, I think that she may have been a preacher, but you know, mm. at that time, I'm sure they didn't, uh, <laughs> uh, particularly in Baptist circles, right, right. Uh, didn't call them mm. uh, women preachers mm-hmm. with a few exceptions, but I, that's my wager. But uh, <laughs> both Jenny Parks Williams and uh, Alberta King um, were foundational as well to the theological and political imagination of MLK Jr. And mm. so he, what we get as a world, as not only as the United States, but also the world, the witness of MLK is not um, anomalous. Mm. This is his his life is shaped within a larger tradition, which mm. uh, religious historian Lewis Baldwin calls the Ebenezer tradition. So mm. without the Ebenezer tradition, we would not have had an MLK. Right. You know, as I was reading this article and just what you were saying there about this this whole lineage and how that grew and and how it was a deliberate sort of um, effect that took place over that 40-year period where uh, as it, as we was affectionately known as daddy king um mm-hmm. you know we're be, be preaching i couldn't help but think what it would have been like to be there to listen to you know what that would be you know you'd probably walk out of there three feet off the ground you'd probably be so energized after listening to these guys speak yeah, um, I can only imagine too, but I, re- I do recall that M- MLK Jr. revered all of his elders and he, while he disagreed with his father's um, fundamentalist doctrine, he appreciated and revered and respect his father's message of somebodiness, uh, so to speak, mm. because even with the, despite the fundamentalist tendencies, Daddy King affirmed the goodness and worth and value mm. of his hearers. Mm. That, yeah. Yeah. Now, let's move this forward to present day, because uh, as you point out near the top of your article, that the uh, the U.S. Senate race in Georgia uh, catapulted the Ebenezer Baptist Church into the spotlight. Yeah. Um, so the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock is the Ebenezer's uh, current pastor. And, you know, he himself was is stands within um, the tradition known as Black Liberation Theology. He was trained at Union Theological Seminary um, in New York. Um, he was a student of the late Reverend Dr. James Hal Cohn, who is the pioneering member of the Black Theology Project. Um, and I, uh, Reverend Warnock became pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in 2005, and he has been serving ever since. And so uh, Warnock has, he even published his book called The Divided Mind of the Black Church, where he actually takes up this very subject, the subject of the black church and its role Mm. within uh, the political moment. I believe he published that in 2010. Um, So Warnock entering into the race, while it was a surprise to many people, um, it is not, you have to understand that it is not, it is surprising on, well, his personal decision may have surprised to run 
is uh, surprising. Mm-hmm. However, but the message, or at least his the branding of his own political campaign, which is to fight for the least of these and to fight for equality and to fight for, um, <coughs> excuse me, for a living wage, etc. That's not surprising mm. because he stands within a larger uh, tradition, which is the Ebenezer tradition, because even though the subsequent or the pre- preceding pastors were not politicians, nevertheless, the message of fighting for equality, fighting for justice, fighting for the least of these has been a resounding message in the 135 year history of the church. Mm. Um, and so for Warnock, for for outsiders to see Warnock as a pastor running, um, he's not the first, obviously, black uh, minister to run for any um, federal um Position uh, the Reverend, Je- Reverend, Reverend Jesse Jackson has you know mm. uh, ran for pre- the presidency in the 1980s. Um, the Reverend Al Sharpton also ran for president um, in the I believe it was the early 2000s or was it I forgot. But <laughs> but, uh, but Raphael Warnock obviously he steps into the the light to run for that Senate position. Um, the, what I'm trying to say is it's not anomalous. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, for people who who are intrigued by the merger of church and state within the African American religious experience, they have to understand historically the separation of church and state within the United States does not neatly apply to African Americans mm-hmm. because Black churches have been institutions where Mm. political advocacy begins Mm -hmm. for African-Americans because we had no other recourse. Sure, right. And so, um, and it is a sense, and African-American churches are, um, despite current challenges and current, you know, um, to that narrative, they still provide social and political spaces for mobilization and and, um, redress um, against Injustice. So, um, Senator Warnock, now Senator Warnock, you mm. know, is standing within a larger trajectory of what some would call the prophetic stream of African American Christianity, mm. and Ebenezer is a part of that stream. Right. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for the article, and thank you also so much for taking time to join us on the show and, and share this with us. Not only about the Ebenezer Church, but also uh, your own history and uh, the own the path that you're on. So I want to thank you so much for taking time to do so. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure. And that is the voice of Jason Oliver Evans. He is a PhD student in religious studies at the University of Virginia. I've been speaking to him about his article in The Conversation, How the Ebenezer Baptist Church Has Been a Seat of Black Power for Generations in Atlanta. That's this part of the show. Please don't go away. We will be right back with more right after this right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome someone to the show whose name might be familiar to you if you listen to CBC. Nanaba Duncan is a William Southern Journalism Fellow at University of Toronto's Massey College, where she is studying the experiences of racialized leaders in Canadian media. She is on leave from her role as host and producer at CBC Radio 1, 
In 2016, Nanaba launched Media Girlfriends, a podcast featuring women, journalism, discussing their badass accomplishments, intersectionality, and pop culture. Media Girlfriends is now a podcast company and peer network supporting racialized and LGBTQ plus people, as well as women, non-binary, trans people working in media. The company grants an annual $30,000 scholarship and is currently producing a Black History podcast and video series with Historica Canada. Previously, Nanaba was country director with Journalists for Human Rights in Ghana. In 2020, she won the Influencer Award at the International Women of Diversity Awards and was a delegate at the Pointer Institute's Leadership Academy for Women in Media. And it's a pleasure to welcome Nanaba to the show. I am so glad to be here. So, uh, you know, there were a bunch of questions I want to ask you, Nanaba, about Media Girlfriends, some of those which have now been answered. You started this, <laughs> <laughs> started this in 2016. Yeah, um, I'll tell you how it started if yeah, you're please. interested. I am. Um, I was in my second mat leave mm. and uh, I was in that space um, for new parents where you're just like, Sorry, when does where where does this baby end and I begin like this in that <laughs> space of, um, you know, sleep deprived existence and also sometimes wondering your own what your own existence is. So I started to ask myself questions about what I really wanted to do because there was a feeling of um discomfort in the job that I was doing. So I was hosting a national uh, radio show. It was called the Radio 2 Top 20. Mm. And I liked it because it was about music. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't like was that I was not interviewing people. Mm. You know, I really missed that. Mm. And so um, uh, at the time, I I hadn't had that many opportunities to interview. And I thought that by doing a podcast, I would give myself that opportunity. And so it was it was a way of kickstarting my own professional development as an interviewer. Mm. And I figured that what I would do was interview all my friends who are <laughs> my 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 women friends who are um, mm. who are journalists and who are hosts and who know how to interview and mm. I just thought, well they'll just tell me if I suck. And none <laughs> of them have yet. So I assume David that I'm perfect. That's what I think. That's what I think. Anyway, um, of course, I'm not perfect. I'm still learning. And I think that I've, I've grown as an interviewer. But um, I think the best thing out of Media Girlfriends is that that has grown. It has grown into um, a place where we do events. We're a peer support network. And, and now we have a scholarship. And at the moment... Uh, we are producing a Black History podcast and video series with Historica Canada. I think the best thing, um, besides that growth, is the friendship and the peer support network that has grown from our little circle. At first, it was just, you know, me and three or four of the people who I had interviewed for the podcast. And that sort of, that circle grew and grew and grew. And I mean, I, I call anyone a media girlfriend, no matter the the, the gender, um, Anyone is a media girlfriend if you really also believe in the idea of, of, of getting more perspectives in media. Hmm. As you were talking there and you mentioned that you missed interviewing, I was wondering what attracts you to the art of interviewing? Why do you like it? I don't know that anyone has asked me this question before and I'm so happy that you have. Um, 
it's pretty simple. I just like people (laughs) (laughs) and I'm curious about who they are and what they do and what makes them tick. Mm. And so with interviewing, I get to, um, I don't know, I guess I get to feed my hunger about people and who they are. And I also really like it when I get to connect with a person about who they are and, and who I am. And the two of us come to this place of, you know, we're on the same we're on the same uh, sort of, we're on the same, we're walking together on the same path mm. of knowledge with each other and um, and sort of agreeing with each other. And, and not that it always has to be agreeing, but it's like we're holding hands as we're talking. Mm. Mm. I, I understand what you're saying there. So I have to ask you this follow-up to that then, because... There's a selfishness to this too, isn't there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is. And and that's, I think that you're right. I did speak to it. The selfishness is I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> Feed me. Yeah. Feed me. Tell me the things about you. I want yeah. to know. But um, I, I think I try to come from a place of sharing. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to give me, I also mm-hmm. want to give to you. You know, I am asking for you to... I am inquiring and yeah. and, and um, you could say taking in a way, but because I'm also asking or inviting you to take from me, it is more of a sharing thing. Absolutely. And that's what makes it so wonderful. I know. It's, it's know non-threatening that? way of, of being selfish. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. That'll be our little secret. Okay. Okay. Don't, don't tell don't, anyone. Not a soul. It's just between <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nineveh. So, congratulations on Media Girlfriends, and you kind of opened the door on this as well, is that right now you have this scholarship going on, right? Yes. So, I'll tell you about that. Yeah. Um, we have $30,000 to give away. Um, two, we have two scholarships for two $10,000 scholarships for women, non-binary, and trans students who are uh, studying media, tech, communications, or journalism. One is for a high school student and one is for uh, a student in post-secondary, um, uh, at a post-secondary institution. And then the third uh, $10,000 is for a black high school student who is uh, studying journalism, who's gotten mm. into a journalism school. Mm. And I'm so excited to give these away because um, it's part of my personal mission. Like I, I just want more people who have these um, uh, different perspectives to, I just want them to flood journalism and to flood the media making um, process because the more we have these perspectives, the richer the media we have and and the more it will reflect back at us who we are. Um, I know it sounds really lofty, but I mean, I'm a lofty person. I just go with it. <laughs> it doesn't sound lofty at all, but it also speaks to that inequity. That, That's right. Right? That's right. I can't tell you, like, so, so, so much of my experience, I, I've been the only black person in the room. Mm-hmm. So, so much of it, I really have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that has changed lately, and I'm so happy about it. The other day I was um, at a, um, it was a, a, a chat on, a room on Clubhouse, and it was, with, it was about being a black woman in journalism. Mm. And there were fla- five or six black women on the stage, and I was just like, oh my 
gosh, this is amazing. Like if there was a time when I would be at CBC and if there was a black person it, uh, around, I would literally go up to them and be like, hi, hi, <laughs> hi. You know what I mean? Like, how are you? And I mean, um, it, it sounds, it might sound ridiculous to some people, but when you're the only one and you see someone who, who mm. looks like you, mm. and also if you're an extrovert like me, you go out to them <laughs> and, and you try to make contact. It doesn't mean that you're going to be best friends to, right. with every, with all of them, but you, you want to know what they're about and sure. how they are. What happened to me eventually was that I started to care about how they were doing, right? I, I, I started to try to make sure that they were being treated well who are you referring to the black journalists mm. okay or the journalists of color mm-hmm. that i would meet i started to just i just wanted to make sure that everybody was okay mm. and i think most people who know me at cbc would say well nanabu wants to make sure that everyone's okay and right. that's true yeah. um um but of course it has a you know it's 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 tinted differently when it's someone who looks more like you mm-hmm. i hear you Okay. Now, going back to these scholarships, who's funding these scholarships? They were uh, they were crowdfunded. Cool. So we had a GoFundMe. Our mm-hmm. last year, um, my good friend and media girlfriend Jennifer Hollett, who is now the executive director of the Walrus, um, mm. had this idea that we should launch scholarships under Media Girlfriends, and to fund them, the idea was let's let's just put it on GoFundMe and see if we can get like a couple of thousand dollars and we'll be able to give it to somebody. And last year we started and put it out through our networks and ended up getting $14,000. So we gave away $7,000 to two students last year. Hmm. Um, And uh, it, it was, it was like, it felt so good. Mm. And then this year we crowdfunded again and ended up getting uh, $30,000 and some money is, is still coming in that we're going to roll into for next year. And I think the reason why uh, there has been so much um, uh, support for this effort is because there are a lot of people in our industry who know that there is an issue with a lack of diversity, lack of, com- uh, of inclusion and, and a lack of belonging and, they are with us when they, you know, put in $1, mm. $2, $10, $100, whatever. Mm. And they're saying, in my opinion, they're saying, go, mm. go for it. Like, mm. we support you. Right. We want more of this. Right. And how often are your podcasts running? So uh, I have a new podcast, se- a, a new season that's okay. going to uh, come out in the summer, and it'll be based on my research right now that I'm doing on the experiences of uh, racialized leaders in in newsrooms. Um, the podcast right now has three seasons, mm-hmm. and the last one was actually in I think 2018. So the way that I was doing the podcast was like on the side of my desk, David, like I was also like, I went, I, I started in my mat leave, but then I went back to work. Sure. And when I went to back to work, I started working on fresh air yeah. and I was also the, um, uh, a founding, um, uh, co-chair of, of diversify CBC, which is okay. our employee resource group for right. employees of color. Okay. So I also had like a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Like I was, <laughs> I was busy. You're a little busy. Yeah. Um, but I still made it, you know, I still made the, I still found time to, to uh, work with my media girlfriends. And yeah. then after a while, I had to say, I don't have to feed 
Right. this beast. Yes. I don't have to. Yes. It's okay to stop. I had to tell yes. myself. In fact, a couple of friends had to sort of say it to me like, it's okay mm-hmm. if you need to stop. Mm-hmm. If things are getting to be too much, it's right. okay. Right. And so I, I let it go. Now that I'm on this um, fellowship, I, I, I'm going to get back into it. Cool. That sounds great. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Nanapa Duncan. And for people that want to find out more, they can go to Media Girlfriend's uh, website, which is MediaGirlfriends.com. Can you tell us a little bit more about the website? So we've talked about the scholarships and the podcast itself. Mm. I can say... I spoke to so many different women. So I'll give a couple of examples. One is Zuleika Nathu. Um, She's now living in Atlanta. Um, At the time when I spoke to her, she was living in L.A. And it was uh, one or two years after um, Trump came into office. Mm -hmm. And and she's Muslim. Mm -hmm. And her husband is and her husband is a black man. He's South African. Mm And so she spoke really honestly about what it was like to be a Muslim living in the U.S. at that time. And it got pretty raw mm. um, in one moment where she 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 broke down because and, and this is a, a girlfriend of mine who I have seen as uh, uh, so strong and and is very strong in her faith. And it and it gives her so much of her strength. Um, but um she just was having a lot of struggle when it came to how people viewed Muslims mm. at that time. Mm. And I was so grateful for her to, to tell that story. Mm. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's um, just one example of some of the, uh, some of the women that I've spoken to, these journalists yeah. who have, I mean, every person, no matter what their profession is, they have a life. And so, um, I think what Media Girlfriends did is it just sort of, it just peeled back the curtain, right, mm. on on what it's like to to live as a as a woman who is is working in journalism. Um, now I'll move on to the work with us part. Yeah, uh, we just uh, started as a as a company as a podcast creating company with this contract with uh, Historica Canada. It's a Black History podcast. Um, series as well as a video series and we're going through um, a number of individuals um, in black history in Canadian history who have made their mark one of them is my hero who is uh, Marianne Chad Carey Uh, she was the first woman um, to have a uh, uh, to publish a newspaper in North America, uh, the first black woman to publish a newspaper mm. in Canada. And um, and we also have John Ware, who's uh, a cowboy um, from the pra- prairies mm. and so many other uh, history making people who um, I'm just, I can't wait for it to come out. It's coming out in, se- <laughs> in September and I've been reading the scripts and, and I'm doing it with Garvia Bailey oh, nice. and Hannah Sung. And mm. the two of them are amazing um, uh, podcast producers. Let me correct myself, actually. It's the two of them who are doing it. I'm just in the background paying <laughs> producers, but the two of them are so good at, at writing these stories and, and telling these stories and, and doing it with care and 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 thinking about the the students and the people who might be listening. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful to be working with them. 
And, and that's uh, Media Girlfriends working with Historica Canada. That's correct. Oh, cool. Okay, great. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. What are you excited about looking to the future? Besides Historica Canada, those <laughs> sub-episodes you're doing. I am excited. I, I'm turning my attention to um, students. So hmm. I, in this time, uh, when you're away from work that is, you know, you're this weekly, I was working on a, on a weekly show. And so that mean I was, means I was always thinking of what stories yep. to go should, could be on the air every Saturday and Sunday. Right. And being out of that has been a relief in that I can sit down and, and not have to not think about something that has to be done at this time every single seven days. Mm. And what that means is that I've had time to think about what my purpose is and what my mission is at the moment. And, and I've been, I told you before that I'm always thinking about, um, uh, I, I really care about racialized journalists yeah. um, because of the experiences that I, I've had. And I just want everyone to do well. And I want to see everybody um, uh, lead and I want to see their work out there. And now I'm thinking about students. I'm thinking about how I can, I can support students in journalism school. So yes, I have the scholarship, but I'm just thinking about where I might be able to um, to support them as as a professor, as a teacher. As, I just, that's where I'm, that's where I'm going. Hmm. That sounds great. That's great. You know, and all of those things are very close to us here at Element FM because I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you know our background, but we we grew out of the Aboriginal People's Television Network that launched our station. And uh, so we have a very close uh, tie to uh, not only the Indigenous, but also with, with uh, other people of color that we try to support as much as possible as well. I love that. I'm so happy that Element exists. I really am. I'm so happy for all of you and weirdly proud of everybody. <laughs> like, <laughs> anybody that does well um, for themselves and for their communities, I just, I just feel so... It makes me feel good. Mm. You know, I just recently did an interview with someone in Virginia, and it was on the Ebenezer Baptist Church and the importance that of role that it played in the life of the kings, both Martin mm. Luther King Sr. and Jr., and mm. that whole history. And it was fascinating. It was just a fascinating um, uh, interview to do with this guy. Mm. What did you learn from him that you might be able to share from me? Sorry to turn the No, it's okay. It was really around. it was really the backstory, you know, because we got to learn more about the backstory of the kings and the history of their tie to the church. And to be quite honest, what really excited me about doing the interview with him was I couldn't help but imagine what it would have been like to sit there in the church listening to them speak, you know, every week. Cause I just yeah, thought, I'm nodding my wow. head with you because I, I just, I feel the same way. Yeah. Groundbreaking stuff. And I think too, though, like these are folks, people who were <clears throat> making history mm-hmm. and I, I want us to be doing the same thing. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, you're doing your version of that. I'm doing my version of that. And, um, you know, you talk about the church. I'm also thinking about how faith and um, a, a, a focus on one's own spirituality can help in any movement. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, when you, 
when you focus on whether it's uh, actual faith, uh, like a like a sanctioned religion or mm-hmm. something like that, it, it doesn't really matter. But going back to your own purpose or your source or whatever it is that you you have decided your life means, I think it can really help with whatever change you want to make. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. In fact, that is exactly where that Ebenezer Baptist Church grew out of and and that it was no Mm. mistake and no accident that the kings uh, were associated with that. That's how it all came about, was through that church and through that faith. And, And they couldn't can't really separate the social mm. the social movement from the mm-hmm. religion uh, that would have been taking place there. So it was really it was really fascinating uh, story. Um, That's so beautiful. yeah. Well, what else can we talk about? <laughs> what else can we talk about? Well, you know, um, one thing that has been uh, bubbling up in conversations around journalism is is reimagining what objectivity means um in the wake of George Floyd's murder mm. it really shook up the journalism industry in Canada and beyond mm. um so many people started to uh come out whether it was through twitter or articles about how uh, being the only one in the room uh, affected their or impacted their experience mm. in terms of how they tried to pitch certain stories or how they were considered activists because they wanted to talk about their communities or how um, when they did want to talk about their communities, it it seemed to uh, be sort of pigeonholed into a certain perspective. And so the conversations these days have to do with uh, whose objectivity are we actually working from? Yeah. That's the question that is, seems to be coming up. And as well, I know that at CBC, there's a, a real consideration, real effort going into um, a, uh, go, uh, looking at uh, CBC's journalists journalistic standards and practices it with a with an inclusive lens mm. to try and change it so that um, belonging is prioritized more. And that kind of stuff takes a lot of work. I have to say that for the people who are doing it, I'm sure it's really difficult. Um, and then when you want to make change and there are folks who actually just don't understand the experience that you've had, it's very, very, it can be really, really difficult. It can be really bumpy. Um, it can be embarrassing. It can get awkward. And so it, it can be um, threatening. I like to call can, what's happening it can be threatening. even at other, in other industries mm. um, uh, when it comes to trying to change uh, how, how we approach inclusivity and, and diversity and inclusion. Um, I think that I, I like to call it the our grand experiment mm. because I don't know that we've ever really tried it like this mm-hmm. DEI or EDI or whatever it is that you, whatever um, um, moniker it's gone under, uh, you know, it's been chugging along, but after last summer, right. things really changed. Yeah. Right. And so I call it a grand experiment. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to be part of the grand experiment, mm-hmm. but I also know that grace has to be applied in so many different directions. I have to give grace. 
I have to. I have. Mm. I must give grace to the folks who are just coming on to board with this kind of thinking and trying to change. Unfortunately, it's like I always like think of it as a, like a toddler who's kind of bumping around and you're like, oh, don't go there. Oh, don't, don't go there. Or like you wince when they make a mistake, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, not to compare human beings to babies, but when it comes yeah. to understanding and the yeah. journey, yeah, like sure. you're just getting, you're sure. just understanding things. Yeah. And then there's also grace that has to be applied to those of us who are trying to make this change and we're tired yeah. and we're frustrated sure. and we're angry that these same questions are being asked again. Yeah. Sure. Um, so that's just a, a, a taste of what, what's been going on in the journalism industry from my perspective. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think it speaks to the things that a lot of people are thinking about. Maybe the, the, the media industry is looking at itself a little differently these days, as we yeah. all are. You, you mentioned because of COVID-19, because of the horrific events we saw happening over the last year, but also those protests that we saw as well have raised that awareness and it's given us pause to think and hopefully we are going to come out of this with a much better idea of being more inclusive and approaching mm-hmm. and moving forward in that mm-hmm. way may the grand experiment succeed indeed and with that <laughs> Nana, i want to <laughs> i want to say thank you so much for being on the show with me today and and sharing your thoughts and telling us about media girlfriends thank you david it's been a real pleasure, and uh, let's. I hope we can touch base again in the future. Me too. It's All right. Been fun. All right. Well, you take care, and thanks again. All right. Bye bye. Bye. And that is the voice of Nanaba Duncan. She is the Williams Southern Journalism Fellow at the University of Toronto Massey College, where she is studying the experiences of racialized leaders in Canadian media. And we've been talking to her about her podcast show, Media Girlfriends. You can find out more by going to their website at mediagirlfriends.com. As she pointed out, right now, they have two scholarships for $10,000 each for uh, students looking at black high school students pursuing journalism at a post-secondary institution in Canada, and also for scholarships for women and trans and non-binary students pursuing journalism, communications in media or tech. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.